This is the first official Emmaus Road Gathering teaching. So we're going to start at the beginning with uh, Genesis 1. So some of the scriptures we're going to have up on the overhead. Some of them, if you want to turn there in your, in your Bible, you can. But hopefully we'll make this easy for you guys to follow along. We're going to start reading from 2 Peter 3, 3-7, and we're going to talk about the scoffing spirit and the deliberate forgetting of Genesis 1, because they're linked. The Apostle Peter tells us that these two things are linked, that a scoffing spirit is related to the deliberate forgetting of the truths of Genesis 1. So 2 Peter 3, 3-7 says, First of all, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. So notice the link there between scoffing and lifestyle. They will say, where is this coming He promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget. It's not a casual forgetting. It's just not a a passive forgetting. There's a deliberate intentionality to this forgetting. They deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. Verse 7, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So take note, by the same word, the same word by which the heavens and the earth came into being, that same word, by that same word, the present heavens and the earth are reserved for fire, and they're being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. Verse 8, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So let's just start this teaching with uh, the first point related to the scoffing spirit. Peter says here that in the last days, there will be a scoffing spirit. It's a spirit that mocks. It's a spirit that doesn't take what God says seriously. And he says that the fruit of this scoffing spirit is a wicked lifestyle, a lifestyle that follows its own evil desires. Okay? There's always a link between your spirit and your attitude and your mind and how that finds manifestation in your lifestyle. The topic of scoffing, Peter says, is the promised second coming. Where is this promise coming? He's been waiting a long, long, long time. Is he really going to come? I just go to work in the morning, and I go to work day after day after day, and I get on Interstate 35 day after day after day, and I still don't feel earthquakes happening like Matthew 24 says earthquakes are going to happen. I get my caramel latte at Starbucks day after day after day after day. Okay, I get into the routine of life. Is he really going to come? Is all of that stuff really going to happen in Matthew 24? Isaiah 24 says that the, in the last days, the earth is going to sway to and fro like a drunkard. 
Well, I don't see that happening now. Is it really going to happen? So the scoffing spirit dulls us over time. The scoffing spirit, Peter says, is linked to the deliberate and intentional forgetting of three important truths. And we're going to take note of these three truths. Number one, a deliberate forgetting of what God did in Genesis 1. It says in verse 5 from what we just read, but they deliberately forget. It's a willful forgetting. It's an active forgetting. There's intention behind it. Why? What is it about the human spirit that wants to intentionally forget these things and deliberately forget them? What is it about these things that the enemy wants to dull us to? They deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. We're not going to have time to really dive into what that means, formed out of water and by water. Water appears a lot in scriptures and God's use of it. We're not going to have time to get to that tonight, but we, I hope to get there uh, in the next few weeks. Number two, a deliberate forgetting of what God did at the flood and why he did what he did at the flood. When we forget the flood and we forget why God sent the flood, it leads to a scoffing spirit, Peter says. And he says, by these waters, the waters out of which the world was created in the first place, by these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. Number three, a deliberate forgetting of God's long-suffering, patience, and mercy towards sinners. Peter tells us in verse 9 that the Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. His definition of slowness, His definition of time, and what He's trying to accomplish, and, and how He's willing to work with time with human beings is different than ours. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, not wanting Muslims to perish, not wanting Buddhists to perish, not wanting Hindus to perish, not wanting rebellious sinners to perish, not wanting Americans to perish, not wanting Latin Americans to perish. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, not wanting you to perish, not wanting me to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So what would it mean for you and me if God were not slow to anger and quick to love, but slow to love and quick to become angry? What would the implication be for your life and my life? This is something we don't want to forget, but there's something about the scoffing spirit that wants to overlook this truth. So if we want to cultivate an alert spirit and resist the scoffing spirit, Peter tells us that an accurate understanding of these three issues will help us greatly. We need to know what God was up to in Genesis 1. This is, this is fuel for staying anchored in a sharp and alert spirit that's alive, not being dulled by the things of this age. We need to have clear understanding about what really happened there, we really, and we really need to ask God to grip us experientially by the power of the Holy Spirit with His heart and love and mercy for love and sinners for, like you and like me. So the next few weeks, we're going to be carefully working through Genesis 1 through 3. Peter says that a scoffing spirit and a wicked lifestyle come when people deliberately forget Genesis 1 and the other chapters in Genesis, the Genesis 6 and the flood, Genesis 1 through 3. We want to do the opposite. We are asking God to give us a humble spirit, an alert spirit, an active spirit, a hunger for a righteous lifestyle, 
an obedient lifestyle, not by our own power and effort alone, but by the power and work and grace of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We're asking God to give us the hunger for an alert and vibrant spirit and a righteous lifestyle by deliberately and intentionally remembering the truths of Genesis 1. Okay, so we're going to go after this thing. So what happened to Genesis 1? Why should Genesis 1, when God inspired Genesis 1, when he spoke it to Moses and Moses delivered it to the, the people of Israel, what did God have on his heart so that it would actually motivate us to a life of wholehearted love for God and obedience? Why should Genesis 1 drive us to a life of prayer and hunger for righteousness? Why is God so passionate about us having a clear an accurate understanding of what happened at the beginning. And how does Genesis 1 relate to the second coming and the day of the Lord? Does this sound interesting to you guys? It's interesting to me, and I, it's not just, it can't just be a matter of interest. It's something that the Lord says it's, it's got to be a priority, that we really get our thinking and our hearts straight about what was happening at the beginning. So, Genesis 1, 1 through 3. We had you guys read verses 1 through 10. I don't think there's any way we'll get through 1 through 10, but we, you know, if we're going to meditate on it for 5 to 10 minutes, give you a little more to chew on if, if you wanted to. We're going we're gonna to really hone in on the first three verses of Genesis 1. Genesis 1, 1 through 3, it says, It is written, and the word of God cannot be broken. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and the, the ESV says void. The earth was formless and void is what the ESV says. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. So the first thing we want to point out here, in the beginning... The heavens and the earth have a beginning point. That may sound like a simple point, but not all worldviews in the world share this truth. They're false. What God says here is true, and He says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth have a beginning point. There was a point in time in which the heavens and earth did not exist, Then there was a point in time in which the heavens and the earth did exist. And the point of demarcation, the dividing line, was God's word and God's voice in context of the Spirit of God hovering. Okay? So think about that when you want a breakthrough in your own life. We don't get breakthrough by just thinking a lot. We don't get breakthrough by just being busy. We need the Spirit of God to come and brood and to create. The next point, God exists eternally. He has no beginning and He has no end. And the heavens and the earth cannot contain Him. Okay, let's, I, I like this verse from King Solomon, 1 Kings eight twenty seven. He says, but will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. So take note of that, that the heavens cannot contain God. God is outside of the heavens. Creation is contingent on one who is eternally, who eternally exists, who had no creation. He is the creator. Point C, there is more than just one heaven. There are multiple heavens. How many of you guys from your church tradition growing up, you always talked about heaven in the singular? 
most of the time. How many of you know that most of the time in Scripture, it talks about heavens in the plural? So that's, that, that's fascinating. This should be a topic we want to talk to Jesus about. So how many heavens are there? If there's multiple, what are they like? Who lives there? What kind of stuff is in the heavens? What's it made out of? What, how do the heavens relate to each other and to the earth? Is there, is there an experience of time in heaven? Do the creatures that inhabit heaven, do they experience time in any way? Kind of like we do. You know, how has God arranged and made his being accessible to his creatures who live in the heavens? How do people get to God in the heavens? How do they interact with God? This is what we're going to be talking about. Uh, I don't know if we'll get to it next week. I hope to be able to get to it next week. But does anybody find that an interesting topic? If so, come back next week. I'll just whet your appetite. We're going to explore the heavens and let God fascinate us and fascinate our imagination. Can human bodies go to the heavens? Does Jesus have a human body still, a resurrected body? Well, we can't do it yet, but will we be able to do it? So we'll let God uh, blow our minds next week with that or, short, or, or the week after. The next point, when God speaks, God creates. Life comes forth and is created when God's word is spoken as his spirit moves. God's word is powerful. God's word is mighty. God's word is strong. And when God speaks, things happen. Life comes forth. I love Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, Almighty ones. If you don't want to have a scoffing spirit, we need to do Psalm 29. We need to ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. If we don't, people that have a scoffing spirit, they don't give glory that's due the Lord's name. They don't ascribe glory and might to him because he's delaying the demonstration of that power because of his love for sinners. He's delaying the day of the Lord because of his patience with people like us. Who's happy that God delayed? The day of wrath has been delayed in in time. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. Now let your mind and your imagination go back to Genesis 1, what you were just meditating on. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The Spirit is hovering. And the God of glory thunders in power. Let there be light. Boom! And there's light. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. One of the reasons we need to resist a scoffing spirit is because, apart from God's mercy, His voice could break us. Our lungs, our very life, and our being. One word from God and we could be broken and dissolved back into the dust out of which we came. The voice of the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf, Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The Lord is going to shake the earth. The voice of the Lord will shake the earth. We need to have a a spirit of trembling, a holy trembling, that our God, the one who holds us in the palm of his hand, he is going to shake the earth. And he's going to do it, again, because of his love and mercy for sinners. 
but also because of his justice. Verse 9, the voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest spare, and in his temple all cry glory. If we want a spirit that doesn't mock the living God, that doesn't scoff the day of his return, the kind of spirit that doesn't do that says glory when God speaks. Verse 10, the Lord sits and sits or uh, or. The alternative would be that he sat enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord blesses his people with peace. The next point, we are made in God's image. And our words too have power. With our words we can harm or heal. James calls the tongue a restless evil. How many many of you have ever just spoken some things and just blown it? And you've seen a mess made by the words you've spoken. How many of you know the power of an I love you to somebody? How many of you know the power? Why do we sing happy birthday? Because we're speaking words that we value a person's life. And we're building them up and edifying them because we're saying we value you. We value your existence. Our existence would not be as rich and blessed without you. Okay? We must ask God to help us have righteous speech. We don't want to speak words that destroy people's lives. We don't want to speak gossip and slander okay we don't want to use our speech to to just show off to everybody how much we know or think we know or to puff ourselves up there's all i mean we don't want to use our speech to speak sexual innuendos we want our our tongues to be clean clean of that kind of stuff okay and whatever influences cause our tongue to start spinning out of control we need to shut it down because the voice of the Lord is powerful and the voice of the Lord is majestic. We're made in His image and our words matter. Proverbs eighteen twenty one: the tongue has the power of life and death. Let's speak life and not death because we're made in His image and God speaks life. Verse, uh, uh, the next point, creation implies the authority of the Creator. God created the world, therefore God has authority over the world. The scoffing spirit does not like this truth. We must not be arrogant and think that we are in charge or that we know what is best for the world. We don't like this truth as human beings because of our sin. Okay? So in our perverseness of heart, we often do what? We do what Peter says. We deliberately forget that God is the one who created the heavens and the earth, that God has the power to give and take life, that our lives are dependent on God And the fact that he spoke us into existence. We've got to get the facts straight if we're going to resist the scoffing spirit at the end of the age. The next point, God is creative. He loves to create. He loves to take things that are shapeless and void and empty like a lump of clay. He loves to brood over them and sing over them. He loves to brood and with his spirit And then he loves to shape things with his creative word. God's an artist. He enjoys what he does. We're made in God's image. So if you're an artist, who, anybody here feel like they've had an interest in art? A few of you? Music? Let that stuff flow, guys. This is, if you're an an artist or musician, dream with God. Let him take you deep. This is is one of the, the key ways that you actually enter into your, uh, who you are as a created being and as a human being made in God's image. Let him, let him take you into that, 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 dream, that journey of dreaming with him and, 
and let the image of God shine through. And don't be afraid to mess up. You're actually reflecting your maker when you do that stuff. And if you, you know, that's one thing, I'm not going to get into this, but in our, our modern education, educational system, at least in the West, we tend to really value the left brain and the math and the linear thinking, but you kind of have to, you're kind of weird, or at least, you, you know, if, you're, if you do art and stuff. Well, I tell you what, God, He really likes both. He created us. He created us to explore Him in, in, in all different kinds of ways. So maybe even sometime during worship, I've seen different. I've seen. Uh, I've been a part of a few services, few services where people have painted during the service. If uh, if any of you have that desire, send uh, send us an email at info at danielinstitute.org, and maybe we can we can talk to the the church leaders and see if we can get a little something going on for you to start painting and doing or dancing or something. I appreciate you know, guys. I, you, you trust me. You never want to see me dance. But if you want to dance, let's dance. Let's do this thing. Don't be shy. Don't, don't feel inhibited. Okay, uh, now, I, another point here. I just want to point out a leadership principle. A lot of time, at least uh, in my experience, people come to leaders. And, they, you know, wanting quick and easy answers. And I believe that as leaders, we really need to get back in the habit of really directing people to the Holy Spirit more and more, trying to get... And the reason is, instead of... There's one, way, there's one of two ways we can do things. They can come to you, and, and you can give them your answers. When they might not be too bad of answers. You might have picked some things up from experience that are helpful. Or you can encourage them to go and ask the Holy Spirit and talk to the Holy Spirit. And what, we're trying to, what you try to do in that situation, we're trying to get them in touch with the reality of Genesis 1. We want to position them so that the Spirit of God broods over their heart and over their mind and over their thinking. And then the Word of God comes and it exhilarates their spirit and it's got anointing on it and it's got grace. And the ideas begin to flow and generate and suddenly you feel like you don't have to... It's, there's grace on it and there's unction and there's energy behind it and you don't have to just keep pressing. And I tell you what, when that kind of thing happens, there's motivation. As leaders, we need to position God's people for Genesis 1 encounters. We want to help people become postured in the place of prayer for the Spirit to brood over their hearts, speak the word of creativity related to... And whether that's a a word of transformation and inner healing, whether that's a, a word related to ministry assignments and calling and passions. Now, sometimes this gets frustrating for people. And so I've had people come to me, well, well... What do you think about this? Well, why don't you go ask the Holy Spirit? So they go and they say, well, I think I kind of felt this or that. That's awesome. Well, what do you think about this? Well, why don't you go ask the Holy Spirit? And, and, and then, you know, a couple months later, they, they, they're still asking. They're waiting on the Holy Spirit. But then, so it got, it's that tension, that frustration. I, need, I want to hear from God. And I don't just want the opinion of a man. I want to hear from God. And, and they, get, they get positioned. And then the the Holy Spirit comes after that time of waiting in the wilderness. He comes with the word, boom, and it's just like suddenly all the time you could have spent those two months laboring in your own strength, he compensates for it with one single word, and it all becomes clear. And you don't, it's just, how many of you ever feel like you've had an experience kind of like that? That's, I just want to encourage you, you, if the Lord's entrusted any kind of leadership to you, to really 
make intentional efforts to get people uh, going to the Holy Spirit more than they go to you. And being patient with people and, and loving people in the midst of that. So though we, though we have to wait for it and though it's hard sometimes, when the Word comes, the human heart gets exhilarated in the process and a heart exhilarated by the Spirit is a motivated heart. Tell you what, people start hearing from the Lord about His passions and dreams for their lives. Be surprised how few, how, how the, the motivational speeches for getting people to do stuff just kind of become less and less and less because the Holy Spirit Himself is motivating them. And we're becoming a servant to His leadership in people's lives. So now I want to turn our attention to, we, talk, we, we saw the dynamic of Genesis 1, Genesis 1-1, the Spirit of God brooding, God speaks, powers released, and creation happens. How many of you think it would be an interesting question? What was God actually feeling in His emotions when He created the heavens and the earth? I want to, I don't, I want to know the process, but I want to know the emotions of the God behind the process. What was God feeling? What were, when He created the world, what were the emotions flowing through His being, through His heart? When He created the heavens and the earth, what were the things that were driving Him? What were the what was he experiencing? What, what kinds of things were going through his mind and, and his heart? What feelings did he have? We're going to learn. We're going to read here a passage, a couple passages, one from Job and one from Proverbs. But we, we we learn from these passages that when God created the heavens and the earth, it was a joyous occasion, full of joy and singing. And that God felt great delight and pleasure over the good world He had made. So let's read uh, Job, Job thirty-eight four through seven. He tells Job, "This was after the Lord's kind of reminding Job, you know, not to have a scoffing spirit." I don't know if, that, if that's the way you put that, but reminding Job of of uh, his power, and that that even jo- though Job was suffering and going through great trials, that God knew what He was doing, and God knew the end result of the process, even though it was hard for Job at the present time. Job 38, 4-7 is written, verse 4, Where were you when I lay the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched out, who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set, or who, excuse me, or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. So God is creating the heavens and the earth. The stars are singing. The angels are shouting. This was not a quiet event. You know, you you see scientists talk about the Big Bang and it kind of just makes it seem like this impersonal thing called the Big Bang just happened and... Stars and galaxies are going... No, this was a very personal event. Angels were singing the Hallelujah Chorus. Angels were rejoicing. The stars were singing. Things were... were it was a very personal event. Things were moving and shifting. And the angels would, were erupting with explosions of, of love and worship and adoration for the, Messiah, for, for, for the Lord and for God and, and, and His creation. Proverbs eight twenty seven to 31 says, I, it's talking about wisdom here, and it's referring, this is actually uh, referring to Jesus as the eternal word of God. I was there when he set the heavens in place, 
when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundary so the waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Verse 30, then I was, then I was the craftsman at his side. I was filled with delight day after day. So when you read Genesis 1, and you, see, you hear it say, the first day, the second day, the third day. You need to actually hear the first day, angels erupt. Woohoo! Thank you, God. Yes, beautiful. Glory to the righteous one. Worship breaking out. Because it says that he was filled with delight day after day. His delight didn't wane. It did not decrease. It did not lessen with each day. It increased. And his rejoicing, his rejoicing and delighting in mankind. So this is how God felt. These were the emotions of his heart as the world was coming into existence. What does this tell us about God? What does this tell us about the world? He wanted it. The world exists because God wanted it. God desired it. That should really do a lot to to break some rejection off of us. Because the same kind of truths apply to us. How do you think God felt when he made you? What kind of emotions were going through his heart as the spirit brooded over you in your mother's womb and he spoke the word of life? How do you think God feels when he heals the sick? When he drives out demons? When he creates a new leg and a new arm? What are the, the, what are the feelings and the pleasures and, and the sensations that he's feeling in his heart? He's feeling great joy and great pleasure, exhilaration. How do you think God feels when he sanctifies you, even when you feel all broken and sinful and weary? How do you think he feels when you're with him in the secret place and he's, and he's transforming you? That's what God does to our heart. God does Genesis 1 to our hearts in this process of sanctification. His spirit moves and then he speaks the creative word. And over time, this transforms us. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Well, as the old is going and as the new is coming, God feels great, great joy and great delight. Great joy and great delight. I want to speak that over all of us tonight. So, we're getting a feeling, the process of creation, the Spirit of God broods, God speaks, something's created. We get a feeling of the emotions, a sense of the emotion that's in his heart, that's churning in his heart as he creates. Now let's, I want to talk about the covenant, his covenant with creation. God doesn't just create, but God is highly committed to the things he creates. We create things, and then we throw them away if they break. Anybody do that? I mean, most of us do that, right? You know, that's one thing that gets frustrating about modern technology is that it seems like it's, they've kind of created it to have a lifespan of about five years so that it, it'll break so you have to go buy a new one. I don't, I don't know if that, how intentional that is or not, but it seems to, to work out that way a lot, doesn't it? And so we throw it away and we get a new one. But God isn't like that. 
You know, love, love is cheap without commitment. I don't know about you guys. I, I, you know, we've, we've all been in circumstances. Most of us have been in circumstances where we experience cheap love. You know, love is cheap without commitment. It isn't real. And that's why this generation is so broken. Parents bring children into the world, but without commitment to them. Young couples give their bodies to each other, but without the, without the bond of commitment that a marriage brings. And if, and if you sit people down and they're really transparent with you, I mean, I'm talking about young couples, you know, this almost always leads to shame and heartache. Love without commitment, it, it's not anchored in anything real. It's fleeting. It comes and it goes. Love without covenant, covenant, the commitment of a covenant. Love without covenant, it creates insecurity and doubt in people's hearts. It creates questions and doubts about, is the person really, does he really love me? They, they you know, are these just a nice, a, a bunch of nice, I love yous, or is there a real commitment there? It builds walls. In marriage, love includes emotion, it includes desire, it includes pleasure, it includes affection. But if you're married, I think most of us, who's married in here? Just curious. Most of us could vouch, could vouch that, that these things are they're superficial and they're flimsy if they're not anchored in, in deep commitment. Most days, the way I'm feeling depends on, I've got about 20 factors about how I'm feeling most days. How much coffee have I had? How much sleep did I get? Did I read the Bible or did I not read the Bible? Did I pray or did I not? I mean, there's how many of us, I don't know if anybody else's life is like that. But my wife, she has to deal with me most days. No, every day, pretty much every day, right? And, but she, but o- over time, we, as, because we're bound by a covenant, our confidence and our security is in our relationship. It's in the covenant. It's in the bond. And because of that, the other things, they, they take their proper place, and they're that much more beautiful. Well, it's the same with God. God feels deep emotion. He feels deep affection, exhilaration, and pleasure over the world He created. But this love is also anchored in the, com- in the commitment of covenant. So, that, let's, uh, so when God, we're going to go to point D here, or the next point. When God created the world, He made a covenant with creation. He bound Himself to His creation in a covenant of love. He promised to sustain the universe by His power and love. This was an eternal covenant. God is eternally faithful to His covenant with creation. And He has promised to uphold and love His creation forever. Excuse me, I'm just going to get a drink of water here. It's good water. We're made out, the world's made out of water and by water. It's good. Thank you, Jesus. It's supposed to be a joke. But, (laughs) don't, there you go. So, uh, anyway, Jeremiah 33, 19 through 26. Read this with me. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says. If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night no longer come at their appointed time, then my covenant with David, my servant, and my covenant with the Levites, who are priests ministering before me, can be broken, and David will no longer have a descendant to reign on his throne. And I'll go down to verse 25. This is what the Lord says. If I have not established my covenant with day and night and the fixed laws of heaven and earth. Notice here. God has established a covenant with what? With the day and the night with the heavens and the earth, and his faithfulness to his creation, 
when he made it, is supposed to be a source of encouragement to those with whom he's made other covenants. How many of you know that we're in covenant with Jesus? How many of you know that the co- his, God's covenant with creation is linked dynamically to the covenant that we have in Jesus? So God here, he uses his covenant with creation as a means of strengthening Israel. His covenant faithfulness to creation is eternal and irre- irrevocable. And uh, the thing is, so the question is, is it any comfort to Israel if God's if God's covenant with creation is not an eternal covenant? No, it's no comfort at all, is it? It's like me saying, on the day of my marriage, I promise and swear to cherish you for 20 years. <laughs> okay, God's covenant with creation only has meaning if it's an eternal covenant. Okay? So now, of course, we're not going to get into this topic. Um, but God's... God's faithfulness to creation lasts forever, and that's a source of covenant to, to us who are in covenant with Him. Now, the tension comes, what, what if God is faithful to His creation, but parts of that creation resist Him and harden themselves against Him to the point of no turning back? That's an, that's an interesting tension you, that, that the Scripture talks about. God's promised that the, the creation is going to exist forever, but part of His creation res, resists and rebels against Him. And so then that starts leading to questions related to why there's a lake of fire. Why is there going to be a resurrection of the wicked? And God's going to actually give them new bodies. Part of it's linked to His covenant with creation, I believe. But we're not going to get into all of that tonight. So Genesis 1 in the Gospel. Throughout Scripture, God uses Genesis 1 to remind His people that He has power and the ability to fulfill all of His promises to us. And a good example is the, the famous passage from Isaiah 40. Why do, you, why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary, increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary. Young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. When you feel weary and tired, remember Genesis 1. Remember it. Remember it as a source of strength. God will see you through it. God is going to fulfill His promise to send Jesus back, to deliver us from sickness, disease, and justice. But again, we mustn't forget that God is delaying, using His Genesis 1 power in the second coming, because of his patience with sinners. The Aleph and the Tav, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, is patient with sinners because he loves us. This is good news for us. It meant our salvation. God's covenant promises to Jesus's, God's covenant promise to Jesus' disciples is this. If we hold firmly to the gospel, if we remain loyal to Jesus, even through sufferings, trials and persecutions until Jesus returns, God will raise us from the dead by the Genesis 1 power that brought the universe into existence in the first place. He will give us glorified bodies as the Spirit of God broods over the creation and as, he, as the Aleph and the Tav, the Alpha and the Omega speaks the word. Genesis 1 shows that God had the power to bring the heavens and the earth into existence the first time 
and that he has the power to give life to our bodies again in the resurrection at the end of the age. There will be a bodily resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. God has power to raise both the righteous and the wicked from the dead. Acts 24, 15 through 16, it is written, and I have the same hope in God, Paul says, as these men, that what? That there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Verse 16, so I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. We always talk about not striving. There's also a godly striving. In light of the resurrection in the day of the Lord, we want to have a clear conscience and whatever that takes for, that, for our Creator to give us that, to, to shape us and mold us in a life of righteousness and obedience. We want to run that race and give ourselves fully to it. 1 Thessalonians four thirteen through 18 It is written, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Because we haven't forgotten Genesis 1. We're not among the scoffers. We know what happened at the beginning. Verse 14, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we, who are in him and who have his spirit, so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. That means those who have died. Those whose bodies are rotting and decaying in the ground. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you, that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command. As the Spirit of God broods, the command will come. Come up, my people! I have not abandoned you to the grave. Come forth! The same word that brought into existence the first time will speak the word again and resurrected bodies and tissue and bone will come together and will be full of glory in an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs and surpasses. There are sufferings and afflictions in this age. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command. Come forth, my bride, with the voice of the archangel. And with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. My father, my grandfather, will be raised from the dead before me. If I'm, you know, unless, I'm, unless I die before he returns. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds. There was rejoicing at the first creation. There's going to be rejoicing and celebration when the Alpha and the Omega creates again anew, the new heavens and the new earth, purged of wickedness and defilement and rebellion, so we will be with the Lord forever. And He will delight in us as He delighted when He first made the creation. Therefore, encourage one another with these, these words. Who's encouraged by these words? John five twenty five through 29 I tell you the truth. A time is coming. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. That's what a spirit that is not the scoffing spirit says. I tell you the truth. A time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear what? His voice that Genesis 1-1 word being spoken as the spirit broods. They will hear his voice and come out. 
Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. In other words, they'll be thrown into the lake of fire. Genesis 1 reminds us that God has power to do what He has promised in the gospel. Every single promise is yes and amen in Messiah Jesus to the glory and praise of God. Emily, Richie, Jen, Dave, Terry, Joan, Diane, all of you, you will come forth from the grave in resurrected glory and power if you remain faithful to the end. It is sure. Genesis 1 and what happens there shows that God has power to do what he has promised you. Jesus, when when Jesus returns, God is going to use the power of Genesis 1 to purge the earth of wickedness, fill the earth with righteousness. Jesus is the author of life as the eternal word of God, the Aleph and the Tav, the Alpha, the Omega, who was with the Father at the beginning. He was the one through whom the world came to be the first time. Now as the word of God made flesh in Jesus with the resurrected body, he's been raised from the dead and he will be the author of life again when he appears. God is in covenant with his creation. He is faithful to restore his creation. When Jesus returns, he will show God's faithfulness to creation by restoring it, not by annihilating it and destroying it. Just make it a point because some people believe that when God comes back, he's just going to throw it away. No, God is faithful to his creation by fixing it, not trashing it. Acts 3, 19 through 21. It doesn't talk about an annihilation of all things. It talks about a restoration of all things. That's the hope of the gospel. Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus Christ in Genesis 1 power. I'll insert that. Who was preached to you before, verse 21, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Since the world began. He has been saying, I am faithful to my covenant with creation and I will restore it. God has power to bring the dead to life. He is in a covenant with creation. He feels emotion about it, but he's also in covenant with us to receive the promises when Jesus returns in Genesis 1 power to be a part of that new creation and the resurrection of the righteous. We must persevere and cling to faith in Jesus to the end, no matter what we face in the days ahead. Persecution and tribulation are coming. Mark my word. It is prophesied. It is prophesied. It is coming. But God will sustain us through it. By what? The same power that he brought the world, by which he brought the world into existence. We're not alone in it. He will sustain us, but we must call to him. We must ask him to strengthen us by his word. If we hold on, he will resurrect us at the end of the age by the power of Genesis 1. But we must stand firm to the end. 1 Corinthians 15.2 says, By this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. This, who, who wants to believe in vain? Not me. I don't want my heart to be the soil. The seed hits the soil and it has no root. And so when the persecution comes, I fall away quickly. So as we wait for our hope and seek to walk in obedience and righteousness, we aren't alone. God gives us grace to press forward. God felt great joy when he created the heavens and the earth. God loves to recreate you. He loves his work in your life. Even when you stumble, don't forget how much God delights in reshaping you.
Repent and cry out for more grace. As soon as you stumble, repent and cry out for more grace. Keep keep pressing ahead, not by your own strength, but by the Spirit's power. The, The power of Genesis 1 is what will sustain you in your weakness. He, Jesus will sustain you by his powerful word as you meet with the one who loves you so dearly. In fact, this week I blew it a couple times and the temptation in my heart was to run away. I wanted to run away. But God, in his kindness, this, he sent his spirit again to my heart. He spoke the word and he says, come to me, son. Come back to the secret place. Don't run from me. And then in that place, even in my, my weakness and repentance, he reminded me of his delight in me. And he does the same with you. Keep praying. Jesus says that if we want to bear fruit, we must abide in him. Sometimes we avoid prayer because we don't know the God of Genesis 1. We don't know the God that delights in recreating us. The God who takes that void, empty thing called your life and refashions it because of his love and commitment to you. Genesis 1 shows that God enjoys you. Who wants to really believe that from the gut level? Not just here, but from that gut level, you walk every day, you walk throughout your life, and you just have that gut level knowing, I'm loved. I want to live from that place, and that that the one I'm loved by is the one who brought the universe into existence. Genesis 1 shows that God delights in remaking you into the image of Jesus. Genesis 1 shows that God feels deep love for you, and that he's deeply committed to you. The scoffing spirit says that you don't even need to be transformed, because God's not going to do it. The scoffing spirit says that God didn't really do Genesis 1, so why would he actually have the power to fix you? Okay? We say, no, God has power, and he's going to fix us. He's going to fix us. He's going to restore all things. There's no need. Genesis 1 shows that God feels deep love for you, that he's deeply committed to you. There's no need to avoid prayer any longer. Your maker enjoys you. He's, He's your potter. Abiding in God through prayer is a crucial experience. It's the way we put the clay of our lives into the hands of our Creator. When we put the clay in His hands, the Spirit will brood. Jesus will speak the word of transformation to our inner man. We get to know the God who delights in us. In prayer, we access grace and strength to stay loyal to Jesus. Our Creator is faithful to meet us in the secret place. The secret place is where Genesis 1 can happen over and over and over and over and over again. Last year, I, uh, I was in the prayer room at the House of Prayer in Kansas City, International House of Prayer, and I was reading a book, and the Lord interrupted my, my time. We can get the worship team to come up here. I'm closing. Um, the, uh, I was, the Lord interrupted my devotional time. <laughs> I don't know how that works. But anyway, the Lord had to kind of interrupt what I was doing in our devotional time together, get me on His page, and... Uh, I began to just feel his spirit move on my mind, not just very, very tenderly. And I saw a picture of, of Jesus. He was standing. I just saw a picture in my mind's eye. It was that Genesis 1 word being spoken as the spirit was brooding. I saw Jesus standing there. And my father, who there's a lot of, just a lot of broken issues in his life. And there was a lot of tension between uh, a number of things between us, and he passed away in 2005, and he, he finished well. He, he finished, I believe he finished well, and, and he's with the Lord. But he, we were standing there in this vision, and Jesus had one hand on my head, and he had the other, his other hand on my, my dad's head. And I just, and, and, the, and I was feeling the Spirit's presence move on my heart, 
And I saw Jesus just there beaming with delight and the joy of recreating my relationship with my father. And I felt the Spirit's presence going through his hands into my father, into me. And we were weeping and weeping and weeping and weeping. And then, of course, I began weeping in the chair, you know, my book. That's an example of how the Genesis 1 experience, God is designed. That's that's how he brings about our transformation. And I asked him, I said, so, Father, what, what are you doing here? And immediately he said, I'm I'm turning the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to the fathers. And I began to weep and weep and weep. And I felt freedom come. And I felt like something in my inner man had been created. That's the, the place of prayer is where Genesis 1 happens. So this week, I want to encourage all of you to set aside some extra time in the secret place. Ask the Holy Spirit how He can take you deeper in the place of prayer. Find others Ask the Holy Spirit how He might want you to connect with others to go deep in the place of prayer and, 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 and encounter the God of Genesis 1. Ask the Holy Spirit to brood over you in the room. If it helps, put a chair across from you and just picture Jesus sitting across from you. Ask Jesus to speak His Word into your heart. And I want to encourage you, if the Holy Spirit gives testimonies, to, if, if, if testimonies come from this time, send them to us. Send them to us at info at, at, at danielinstitute.org. Let this be fuel for further intimacy and love for our maker. So what I want to do now is I want to give, the chance, give a chance just for people to respond together. If you want to come up here and pray, you can. But I want to encourage everybody to break up into groups of two or three. And we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to brood over us. We're going to ask Him to speak the creative word of life over us. We're going to ask him to draw us afresh to the place of intimacy and communion and fellowship with our maker. So, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, Jesus, you were with the Father at the beginning. You were right there with him. Just woo us again with your tenderness and your pleasure and your delight over us, Jesus. You've walked with us this far on the road. Cause our hearts to burn even deeper. We don't want you to leave. We want your spirit, God. We want your spirit, oh God. We need your spirit to brood. In the name of Jesus. Lord, in the name of Jesus, let your spirit brood.